Hello everybody and welcome to the Greatest Games podcast on the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, with me is Jonathan Wilson and with us today is Tim Vickery, long-time contributor to BBC Sport, including the World Football Phone-In of course, uh, contributor to ESPN, World Soccer and can be seen on screen regularly in his country of residence, Brazil. Tim, a pleasure to have you on the pod. Yeah, it can be seen on screen regularly when they find a way to fit my nose on. It's, uh, it's a challenge for some of the technical people. But it's worth a trip to Brazil, um, uh, you know, outside of pandemic times, of course, uh, for, for that in and of itself. Tim, today we go back to May 1992 for the European Cup final at Wembley that finished Sampdoria 0, Barcelona 1. Why have you picked this game? Well, firstly, obviously, because uh, it's kind of almost 19 years to the day since Sunderland won the FA Cup final on this hallowed turf. <laughs> Let's get that out of the way quickly. Um, but I have, I have both subjective and objective reasons for, for choosing this game. So um, just to be clear, it's 19 years and 15 days, carry on. <laughs> At the time of recording. <laughs> no, no, I mean, th- this game uh, came 19 years and 15 days. Oh, I see, sorry, 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 sorry. I'm in awe and also a little bit in pity of your precision there, but, <laughs> but fair enough. Mm. Yeah, I, I've both objective and subjective reasons. The subjective reason is, well, I was there. And that, mm. that's always great. And it was probably, I wasn't there as a journo. In, in some ways, this game does kick off what is has become ludicrously my career. Because I did do a piece, it's the first piece I ever published, straight football writing for for the Spur, which is a kind of football fanzine. Um, it's quite a long article and I quite enjoyed doing it. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that's, that's all right, isn't it? So uh, it, it's significant to me, but it, it, was, it was just a dream. Mm-hmm. It was an absolute dream England had become London had become the Mediterranean um it would in the middle of a heat wave it had just become Barcelona or Genoa you know that's that's what it was like uh, and there's no there's no better place in the world then if it was like that all the time I'd, I'd never leave and I was working in the west end of London so I just felt involved with the whole thing all the fans uh, coming over, in, you know, the, the build-up the days before. I was out on the streets watching the fans. The game itself was, uh, it, it was just, it was fantastic to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was by some distance, I think, the highest quality game that I'd ever seen in the flesh up till that point. And mm-hmm. because I, I've been on, over this side of the Atlantic you know, from two years later, I haven't seen that many games in the flesh that have been better. Than, than this one. Um, it's just full of stories for me. I mean, it's, I've told this story many, many times, but it's one of my favourite memories. Just going back into town afterwards, the euphoria of, of the whole event. And I had a favourite favorite little drinking dive, which was a Spanish bar on Old Compton Street. Uh, and uh, I'm there, I've gone there in my Barcelona scarf because right, I've been to Barcelona, which was quite rare because I'd hardly ever been abroad, you know. Yeah, and uh, pre EasyJet as well, we should probably say. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got a courier flight, so it was very, very go. cheap. Um, uh, that was in the start of 1990, and it was the first foreign city I'd ever seen. I've been to the Algarve a couple of years before, but, you know, and I fell in love with Barcelona, and uh, the, the people kept on talking about me as if I was one of them. You know, they said, you look like one of us. I think, I think it's the nose again, you know. <laughs> Uh, so I went along supporting Barcelona with a Barcelona scarf, although it's one of, you don't have that pang, that pain when it's your team 
you know, I could it had Sampdoria won that that would have been fine. In fact, I would have preferred a late Sampdoria goal than the nil nil and, and penalties. But going into this Spanish bar that I used to hang about in Old Compton Street, there's this bloke who's out with his with his with his girlfriend, and I can see he wants to speak football, and he's kind of inching across, he's inching across, he's inching across, and he says in in you know taking it as slow as possible, so I'll definitely understand. He says, I'm really glad you won. And I kind of <laughs> nod, playing him along. And he says, I support West Ham. Have you heard of West Ham? And I say, yeah, mate, I'm a Tottenham fan. And he's so surprised he falls onto the floor. And there's people around laughing and I get talking to these Spanish girls and walking them to the bus stop afterwards. And and if I could choose a time, you know, because I'm 26, I'm just a few days away from being 27. If there's a better age to be, then... uh, I haven't discovered it yet, and I'm probably running out of time to, uh, to to discover. So it just sums up a wonderful moment. The, the game was a wonderful moment. It was a very happy time in my life. So they're the subjective reasons. From an objective point of view, I think in some ways, this is the start of the Premier League, this game. Mm-hmm. I think this, yeah. this sets the bar. I remember a few months earlier, I've been a league game with a mate. I think it might have been Crystal Palace and QPR. And it was winter and it was the pitch was horrible and it was just it was a nil-nil draw and it was just appalling. It was rubbish, you know. And we went back to his place afterwards and put on a video, because that's what we you had at those times, the video uh, of England in the 1990 World Cup. I think it was a Belgian game. And we were looking at this, you're thinking, well, this England World Cup, it's a different sport from the one that we've just been watching, which was just grotesque. And not just because it was domestic football and it was winter. England, just a, a couple of weeks later in Euro 1992, what a shower of shite that was. Just dull, unimaginative, stupid football. Rubbish. Mm. Um, real rubbish. Mm-hmm. But this game, Barcelona-Sampdoria, sets the bar. You know, it's live on English TV. Uh, big audience. And it's, it's a terrific game. And it, like, this is what is possible. It, the game is is an example of of both excellence in quality quality players, but also in ideas in geometry. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, nowadays, you lucky people are over there. You can probably imagine a Premier League game with those aspects involved. Mm-hmm. Then that was that was hard. Or Liverpool played some fantastic stuff through the 80s and 90s. Really, really wonderful football. And, and Liverpool, the best Liverpool teams wouldn't have been out of place on, on this, this, this field. Um, but that was a rarity, you know, and English, English football was, uh, was, it had died intellectually, didn't it, in, in, in some respects. And, and yeah. this is just, just showing us there is, it's that, it's that great thing when you, when you start travelling abroad and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. there is another way to do stuff doesn't have yeah. to be like this. It, well, it, it, it can be otherwise. I mean, that is interesting. So I never actually really thought about that um, before. I mean, I was aware of the game. I remember watching it. But that is interesting, Jonathan, especially as, as English clubs had been banned, you know, not that long ago from European competition, of course. Did, do you, did you see it like that at, at, at the time? Uh, thinking that this is like the, the, perhaps a bit of glitz and glamour and culture and quality that maybe we've been starved of for a little while? Yes, you know, I, I mean, I, especially yeah. of course, it being at Wembley, it, 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 yeah, it being at Wembley, 
Uh, I mean, Tim's absolutely right. There's something in the quality of the light that night is a, gives it a sort of magical feel. There's a very sort of yellow light. You can sort of feel the heat coming off the TV watching it. And it's sort of... Uh, I, I guess you do get it around that time of year. The 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 when the game starts in sunlight and by the end of the se- only by the end of the second half is it has it gone into darkness and and floodlights. Um, so so there is that aspect to it. Uh, I think the two kits are although they're both mm. away kits, they're both really striking kits for different reasons. I think yeah. the Sampdoria kit is just a you know just a very beautiful kit. The the, the white and the blue with the the, the blue and black uh, hoops. Barcelona wearing orange. Is so culturally significant. Uh, the fact it's that hideous first... as well, though, isn't it? It's, it one is of my fav- co- yeah. it's one of my favorite moments, uh, and it's just so fitting that at the end of the game they change shirts. They change into and they go and get. Yeah, because this is the first time, you know. And let's cast our minds back to to an English audience in 1992. People didn't know Barcelona. They yeah. knew Sampdoria. Sampdoria were for the English fan who was into who was into it. Sampdoria were the glamour side because we got the Italian football on yeah. on, on Channel Four. Yeah. Well, also um, off the back of 1990, you had a couple of the characters like Viali and, yeah. and Paolo, Mancini, and yeah, yeah, exactly, and so on. I, I uh, there was a this Italian cafe in Soho that I lived in. It was called Il Panino, um, the sandwich. Which once I find out what it was called, it lost somebody. somebody but, <laughs> yeah, never, never. It's a bit like Nessum Dorma. Never translate yeah, it. it just exactly. Feel the same. Yeah, but you just walked into it, and you were in Italy. It was only Italian men, only Italian men, and they were just watching football all the time. Uh, if it wasn't football, it was a cycling or the news or videos of Sabrina, who uh, uh, I'm probably the only one old enough to to remember. But you know, I'd never been to Italy. I still haven't. Twice in my life, I've had tickets and I haven't been able to haven't been able to go. But you walked into this place and you felt like you were in Italy, and that's where I lived. I spent so much of my time in this. Unfortunately, the owner he lost the place in a casino the other side of Archer Street, and uh, in the end, some some Arsenal beer boy took it over, and all the Italians left, and it was never the same. But it was a great place, and it was where I used to go. I watched so much. You know, I used to, I loved Tonio Cerezo, the Brazilian mid, central midfielder, a veteran who plays this game. And you'd just go, you'd go in, into this cafe and I'd watch him lining up Viali and Mancini. You know, because he was, he was their main supply line usually. Uh, but also, I used to go there and watch Barcelona. So I, I knew something about them then. I, I, I knew... I remember it was effectively the semi-final. I think it was it was Benfica because it was a group phase. It wasn't yeah, pure yeah. But the last the last group game they had to beat Benfica. Yeah, and uh, it was Dynamo Kiev did them a favour by beating Sparta Prague. So they actually it turned out they didn't have to win it, but going into the game they thought they did. Yeah. In yeah. the days where the semi-final was effectively two groups of four and the yeah. Top yeah. Top well, I mean that, that's yeah, Tim. You you mentioned this being the start of the Premier League. And it's also the start of the Champions League. There's, yeah. Although it's, it's not rebranded till after this game, I think there's two significant facts. So one is it's the first time as a group stage, the two groups of four with the winners going through, which actually, as it, as it turned out, gave incredibly dramatic final weeks of those groups because in the other group, if Svenazvezda hadn't lost to Andlecht, then Sampdoria would not have qualified. And they drew a Panathinaikos, which was enough to get them through. Uh, but also, this is the last time that... The major European final, be that European Cup or Champions League, has been contested by two teams who hadn't previously won it. Isn't that remarkable? Barcelona yeah. have never won it from the point of view of yeah. today's. So they've been in two know. finals. Uh, so they lost in the sixty-one final to Benfica. They lost in the eighty-six final to to Stour. But yeah, and I think there's something about the the rise of Barcelona that they're 
I guess they always were a super club, but a super club who actually won things mm. uh, coincides with the start of the Champions League era. And what amazed me being there, amazed me, was the lack of ceremony. And I just mm. couldn't believe it. I mean, first of all, it was just it, thinking back now, it's amazing you, the ease with which you could buy tickets. Now, I, I remember the following year, I went to the, the Cup Winners' Cup final, which was Palmer and Antwerp. And, you know, it was, it was half full. No, yeah. it, was the, uh, it was amazing. I, I couldn't believe it. Like, surely if you're into this stuff, you're, you know, you're going you're gonna to go and w- watch this game. It was, so it was quite easy to, to buy tickets for, for, you know, biggest game in world football, probably. Um, and just a lack of ceremony. Mm. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was like, we've kicked off. Cry, we've kicked off. You know, <laughs> I was thinking... Uh, and these days, well, so you I just need your abs- half hour of Dua Lipa first, do you? To get yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that is remarkable, exactly. though, Tim, because it, having been to a couple of Champions League finals, one of which was at Wembley in would it be 2013 when Bayern won it, it felt like, my goodness, only the World Cup final could top this in terms of pomp and ceremony. It felt like you were at the centre of the planet, you know, while well, this is the most nothing important thing at all. in the world. Nothing. Which is when, crazy when you describe it like the, that. These days, when I hate, I hate that Champions League theme him you know it always reminds me of the hanover branch of the junior anti-sex league champions <laughs> fucking shut up i hate it but you know at least you got you got something to, to mark the occasion well you know i honestly thinking you know because i don't even remember I, th- I don't remember the pa there was a scoreboard but you know, I, I remember the uh, when the classic old Wembley scoreboard with just yeah. the, the dot matrix yeah. lights, which so often didn't see. work. And, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember when when um, Barca made a substitution, and I'm thinking, who the fuck? Surely they're going to tell me who this is, mm. you know? And I'm thinking, is this Big Ulrich Dain? Is it? And I had to find a Barca fan near me. I'm saying, you know, who is this? Is this Big Ulrich Dain? He says, no, he's Goiko Chair. Because you didn't know, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not telling you. So yeah. you know, the, the lack of of kind of pomp and ceremony surrounding the whole thing was 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 bizarre. Yeah, well, you realise that, Jonathan. That the the nineties is where football began to look and sound like kind of how we know it now. But I mean, even though this was in the nineties, but yeah, as Tim's describing this sort of scenario, the the European Cup final at Wembley, it's it is a far cry from what we know now. Oh, completely different. I and. Even the you know the, what what happens afterwards when uh, the Barca president John Gaspard had 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 vowed that if Barcelona won he'd go and swim in the Thames, and so he does just go down to the banks of the Thames and there's these photographs and again you sort of imagine now there'd be cameras there'd be proper lights so you could see it probably but it's just sort of a man taking his trousers off on a muddy bank going for a paddle it's sort of the most sort of I don't. It's, well, you it's, can see that most Friday nights, but <laughs> in the summer, I, assume, I, I, don't, you know? I don't know what you do in your private life, Marcus. But, um, the, yeah, there's, there's a there's a bathos to it, and yet there's there's sort of there's a purity to it because of that. But it's mm. not this sort of glitzy thing done for the cameras. It's he's made a bet, so he's going to fulfil yeah. the bet, and somebody's taking a photograph, and it's not mm-hmm. properly shot, it's not properly lit, it's all a bit grubby and grimy. Yeah. But you know that that's the way it was. I've got I've got some kind of random images in my mind of the of the few days around the game as well. I remember, I remember the, the 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 Barcelona fans all, the night before the game all greeting up, uh, uh, meeting up at Piccadilly and having a singing session, uh, and it was great. It was fabulous, and the police kind of attacking them, you know. And I I, I went up and had a had a, had a row with the, with the police about you know what on earth are you doing? Mm. And the police chief he told me the best thing we could do now is get this lot away to their hotel beds. 
No, it's fucking joylessness, you know. Yeah. All they're doing well, is singing. I, I, and also a failure to understand the Spanish body clock. I mean, they're not going to go to bed till 4 a.m., yeah. are they? So, exactly. <laughs> but, do you th- but, that, but does that feed into the point, Tim, about the, the, the sort of whether it be ignorance or just sort of lack of knowledge of anything going on abroad? Because they think football fans singing, chanting, we're used to yeah. perhaps the stereotype of the English yeah, fans. Yeah. They'll be the same, bang, in we go. Well, and, and the fans that they were... And you, you, I began to understand different, perhaps different class dynamic, but also different cultural dynamic because, you know, around those days, lots of Barcelona fans would stop me there in the West End and say, uh, how do I get to the National Gallery? You know, <laughs> and how do I get there? You know, and they were they were taking advantage of cultural opportunities that London was, was giving them. And I'm, I'm, I know people who go abroad to watch their team and, and just, you know, get on the plane, watch, go to the stadium get back on a plane and come back, you know? Mm. So there was, there was, there was a different social dynamic. Although the flip side of that coin, I remember watching parading through the West End, some Sampdoria skinheads. And that was a bit frightening, actually. Mm. That was a bit frightening because I mean, the original skinhead, like late sixties, th- there's lots of non-racist elements in there, you know, the connection with Jamaican music and so on. But by the mid eighties, you know, it was much, it was really associated with the far right. And you're seeing it with the, the Italians. You know, I remember this group of them walk, walk, walking, walking down, down Shaftesbury Avenue. And they're lean and athletic. And, you know, to be an Italian skinhead, you've really made an option. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's more of an option that you make. It's more of a choice that you're making than if you're English, because it's not something that's just around. And remembering that, you know, these are like Mussolini's boot boys. So that, that that scared me a little bit. So uh, that that gave me an extra reason, I think, to to want Barcelona to win. Yeah, absolutely. All right, chaps. Well, let's have a quick break and then we'll talk a bit more about the football itself. See you in a moment, everybody. Welcome back to the greatest games on the blizzard. Um, yeah. So we you, you mentioned the Sampdoria fans, but a little bit more of a word perhaps on on Sampdoria themselves, because again. Because of the sort of 1990 World Cup and then and then this game and whatnot, people can, or of, of a certain generation, maybe think that, as you say, Sampdoria with the big side, perhaps the favourite for this game. Whereas actually, really, this was the best period in Sampdoria's history. I mean, they, they won Serie A for the first and only time mm. in 1991. They'd won the Cup Winners' Cup in 1990. Uh, but, but really, this was kind of like, this, I suppose, the climax and perhaps the end of that period under... Um, uh, Boshkov, the Yugoslavian coach, who perhaps slightly underrated coach, you could argue, Tim. But but it it was a great period in Sampdoria's history. Yeah, do you know, do you know why, Jono, they appeared at that at this moment? Why why this is their golden moment? Um, I mean, okay, what I was going to say, which is probably not a direct answer to that question, is that you know they only lost three games in winning the league, so they clearly are a great side. Mm-hmm. But they also, Napoli have imploded as Maradona's suffered his drugs ban. And also you've had all the tension at Milan who, who end up finishing second, but five points adrift in the league where it's two points for win because Van Basten and Saki have fallen out and Saki ends up leaving at the end of the season. So I know why other teams didn't challenge it, but, but tell me why this mm. is, a, is, is the right period for Sampdoria. Well, obviously they've got the financial wherewithal to... Viali and Mancini are are two class acts, aren't they? Lombardo mm. is a is a class act. I know people who watched him when he came to the Premier League. You know, wow, you know, Tonino Cerezo is a is a legend. And one of the one of the big aspects of this game is that 
Toninho Cerezo and Baqueiro almost mark each other out. You know, it, it's it, there's that's the pragmatic side to Cruyff in this game. His best, his most dynamic midfielder. He does have his moments, Baqueiro, but he spends the game looking after Toninho Cerezo. Uh, and uh, he is the supply line. Mm. So that's that's four players who can really hurt you with the ball together. And then the, the defensive unit, Manini is Manini's quick, isn't he? Manini's, uh, he's, right Manini's back, just, yeah, yeah he's, he's one of those def- Italian defenders who, uh, I've, as I say, I've, I've still never been. And there's things about Italian football that, that always strike me. And I saw Arrigo Sacchi give a lecture on this. And he, he, t- he talked about the, the aesthetic sense that Italians have about any, everything apart from football. <laughs> where functionality, 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 you know, and the Italian coaches just go on and on about mentality, mentality, mentality. Uh, and Manini's an example of this, isn't he? Because he's quick, he's functional, he never wants to draw attention to himself, mm. but he, uh, he, he, well, he does Katarnet's a... on the other side as well. I mean, Katarnet's often played as a holding midfielder and would just run all day, you know, would... And it's, would it's really interesting what, what they do with him in this game, because once I think Boscov realises that, that Cerezo is not going to make a huge impact on this game, and one of the things he does is he sends Katanec, I always thought it was Katanec, but I bow to your Eastern European knowledge. They send him up because he's so good in the air. And he, he gets, you know, so he... he, he uh, there's, at that, that point in the game when they go direct, they send him up almost into a number 10 position for the flick-ons. Okay. No, it's one. It's one of the little variations you see in this battle of ideas. So when presumably he ends up being up against Guardiola, which is you can yes. see why you do that because Guardiola's not going to win headers. So mm-hmm. Guardiola is. I mean, in this uh, this piece that I wrote for the Spurs fanzine, I picked him out. I was obsessed with him um, because this it's is my his top first of... first full season, right? He, yeah, I think he played yeah. four games the previous season, but this is his first season as a regular. And going into the game, especially after watching that Benfica match, he was the one I wasn't sure about because he was very young. And that position, he had so much responsibility. You know, Barcelona have got, have got things to delight us in this. They've got Alisanko as a kind of non-playing captain. Uh, and they've got Koeman as a non-defending defender. Yeah, so, right. uh, you know, Guardiola, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of responsibility on him because mm-hmm. he, he's, he's, he's organizing the ball out, but he's also got a cover. Uh, and uh, so, well, I, so I, I, I picked. Go on. Well, on that point of Alessanko, we yeah, we probably should fill in some of the backstory of Barcelona. So, Cruyff comes in in '88, and Barcelona's in crisis. Has been the, the mutiny of the Esperia, which was the hotel where the players revolted against the board, because as far as I understand, that they'd been given two contracts which allowed them to pay less tax. They got caught, and the board wanted the players to pay the additional tax, and the players were sort of well. We didn't have a clue what was going on. We want the board to pay it. And Alessanko was the captain who who led that revolt. So Nunez, the, the, the president, probably wouldn't ordinarily have wanted Cruyff in as, as coach. But it was sort of a sop to, to uh, fans who were in revolt. He comes in. The first season doesn't go particularly well. Uh, he signs Koeman, who doesn't have a great season. Uh, there's a vote of no confidence against Cruyff, which is headed off by Nunez only after they win the Copa del Rey, but I think they're 11 points behind Real Madrid that season. Uh, the, then 1991 is when they, they win the league for the first time under Cruyff. 
Uh, but there's been a huge amount of changes. But Cruyff has kept Alessanko because he recognises him as a bridge to the past, as as, as somebody who bring the squad with him. Um, and then, you know, this is... 91 was the first of the four in a row. Uh, the second comes, what, it's, it's, I think it's about three weeks after this game in the end because the Spanish season goes on so long. Um, so that's why Alessanko is an important figure. That's why he's there as a non-playing captain. And he comes on, I think, he comes on pretty much... As the goal scored, doesn't he? he comes yeah, immediately they, after they, the goal. They, they're going to bring him on before. Uh-huh. They're preparing a substitution. Um, but yeah, so it just so happens that as soon as as soon as the goal comes on, it's scored on he, on he, on he comes. Mm. And he replaces Guardiola for that last eight minutes. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting. In, in, before this uh, final, Guardiola, as you say, um, sorry, Guardiola, uh, uh, Cruyff had taken over. Uh, they won the Cup Winners' Cup in 1989, beating Sampdoria in the final. Yeah. So they had met uh, recently in a, in a European final. The, the coaches were the same. So maybe there was a little um, something. But again, Tim, going back to your earlier point about people maybe not knowing, that I'm sure that wouldn't have come into uh, uh, the the sort of the chat before the game. People wouldn't have thought, oh, maybe there's a psychological edge and so on. You kind of, you know, we've seen these boys. These must be better than them. But when you look at that Barcelona side, I mean, it's easy with hindsight, of course, with these things. And I appreciate that a player like Stoichkov didn't really come into um, your average English or even world football fan until, of course, the 94 World Cup. Yeah. But he's there. He was their top scorer that season. You got Koeman, you say Guardiola in, in his first season, but a player like Michael Laudrup in the middle. Um, I mean, footballing royalty. And go back to Guardiola briefly. As a young player, when you say he's organising that midfield, well, two of the players that he might well have been trying to organise a little bit, or at least say, hang on, I might need a bit of help in here, is, is Becker and Laudrup. So not the not for the faint-hearted, you know, for a young boy to come in mm. and to be telling these players and trying to organise it in, in 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 a side which, not to the English fan, but to the, to, to the Spanish fan, certainly a star-studded midfield. Yeah, it isn't. You know, it's a huge role, isn't it? Because mm. he's he's dictating very often the first pass out of defence and so on. And the, the thing that really struck me, being there, it was one of those things where being there is far better than watching it on TV, is the conception of space. You know, it's a game about, from the Barcelona point of view, the conception of space and diagonal. Everything that Barcelona do, the ball is moved diagonally. You know, rather than the, the I always end up having a pop at Graham Taylor. I'm sorry, but the straight line, straight line, four, four, two, or, you know, yeah, lines, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a moment that will live with me forever in the first half, and it, it's a long one-two played by. Stoichkov. Stoichkov is wide left. Salinas is wide right, which was a surprise, I think. Uh, and then Laudrop is a kind of false nine. Uh, uh, and there's an exchange, there's a long one too between Stoichkov and one of the defenders down that left. He gets a Stoichkov gets a lovely return ball back to him. And then Stoichkov, which again, all of these passes are played diagonally. And then Stoichkov plays diagonally into the centre forward slot, and Laudrup just fails to get there. You know, there are more exciting moments in the game. There are more moments when a goal is close. Both goalkeepers uh, do well, but that was the moment that just lit, lit off a little fire in my head. Just watching, watching the, the the full dimension of the pitch being used with those diagonal passes, I thought, wow. Um, you know, I'm I'm very very lucky to be here watching this. 
Yeah, I mean, what, watching the game on television as I was, Jonathan, what did you think is the guy, is the first half sort of going on and so on? Was, it, was there any moments or players that particularly stood out for you? Well, I mean, I guess we we knew... Would we have known at this point about Koeman's free-kick ability? I guess we did, low. Mm. obviously the direct impact on England comes a little <laughs> later. Um, but you know, he has that free-kick in the first half. There, there is that sort of... I mean, I'm sure Boscoff didn't need to, to be warned about it, but... Uh, there is that free kick that's, that's beaten away by Paliuka. Um, uh, the the pace of Lombardo is is a key thing, and th- and that mm. was sort of. You're watching the highlights back this morning. Um, I sort of forgotten how quick he was. I knew he was skillful, but I'd, I'd sort of forgotten just just the raw pace of him. Do you think that's bald man bias? Do you think you're bald <laughs> early on, and you think no, he must be an old man? Maybe that's it. <laughs> or maybe I just remember him at, at Palace late in his career when maybe he had mm. lost a bit of pace. Yeah, true, true. Uh, but yeah, you know, he he draws a very good save from Zubi Zaretta. Um But yeah, I, I sort of um, I slightly grumpily went on YouTube thinking, well, I, I remember this game. Just three minutes of highlights to remind myself of it. Couldn't find three minutes. It didn't have some <laughs> some stupid music over it or whatever. So I ended up watching twenty minutes of highlights, and actually was very very glad that I did because mm. the as Tim says, the general quality is is so extraordinary. Um, and although it's it's a game that goes for extra time and he has one goal, there's way more to it than than that. Mm-hmm. I, w- I watched the whole thing, um, and yeah. uh, it's the first time. I think I, I think I probably watched VTs of it afterwards just to kind of relive that moment. But I'm really glad that I watched the whole thing for the ebbs and flows. I mean, the, the first half, it, it takes a little while to get going. It takes a little while. Uh, and, and part of that is the fact that Baquero and Cerezo, the two key midfielders, are just marking each other out the game. So that, that, that stops some of the, uh, some of the, of, of the flow. And then the thing that I hadn't remembered at the time was Barcelona come out second half and they're, they're, there's a flurry of chances and it's Baquero. Suddenly he's got, in, he's got into the game. Uh, and uh, he's he's creating and he's dynamic, and but after that, Sampdoria closed down on him, mm. and uh, they closed down on central midfield, and after that, until the end of normal time, there's only really one moment. It's a big moment of danger for Barca, but it's on the counter when Laudrup plays Stoichkov right channel and his his shot comes back off off the inside of the post. But apart from that, it's Sampdoria, and yeah. all of the chances are falling to Viali, and he misses them all. Yeah, but yeah, it was that great break from Lombardo, wasn't there? When he, he goes past Juan Carlos, puts the cross in, and Viali, I mean, he has time. He, he could have taken the touch, but tries to take it first time, puts it over the bar. Um, then he, there's there's two, I don't, they're not quite one-on-ones, but where he breaks into the box with the defender tight on him, and he's got in front of the defender, and he's just got Zubi Zaretta to beat. And one of them, he sort of hits it slightly tamely straight at him. And Zubi Zaretta makes a slightly odd save with one hand, but I'm sure he could have mm-hmm. got two hands to it. And the other one, he does dink it over to yeah. Vizaretta, but just sort of drifts mm-hmm. wide of the far post. Yeah, that that yeah. one, that's the classic Barcelona defensive weakness, mm. isn't it? And Guardiola's done there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and Koeman, obviously, is, you know, where is he? Um, <laughs> so that, they're, I mean, they're, it's, it's, yeah, we, We're talking Guardiola's a holding midfielder, and I guess that is what he is. But it, it's, a, it's a very strange setup, mm. isn't it? Because it's... Mm. It's there's two wing backs essentially in Eusebio yep. Sacristan and, and Juan Carlos. Uh, you've then got Kuman as as Libero. You've then got 
two fullbacks. I mean, you wouldn't call Albert Ferrer or, or Nando. I think you call, you maybe call Nando. Him, you call you, you call, call them defenders. Yeah, you, both of them are. It, it, it's it's in the it's in the Dutch tradition, isn't it? What we yeah. are, we, yeah. we're defenders. And and so Guardiola's almost the the second centre back, the ball playing centre back. Yeah. But the idea that Koeman and Guardiola is a central defensive <laughs> pairing is yeah. <laughs> you suddenly sort of, I, anything I thought about positions just is, yeah. is, is meaningless in this context. And well, of course, it goes wrong for them, doesn't it? Two yeah. years later against Milan, you know, when they yeah, arrive yeah, as, as favourites and and and, uh, and and Milan steamroll them. But Sampdoria, I think what they've done is uh, they've strengthened central midfield. They bring on the first substitute they bring on in Venizzi. He comes on to central midfield and a little fella Paddy goes out to, to, uh, uh, to, to the left back position. And in, in Venizzi just gets around does the stuff, closes down the space. Laudrup finds it hard to get into the game. But the irony is, right at the end, it's Invenizzi who, who commits the foul, which leads to the debate, which I was having at the time, and I'm still having now watching it, was it a foul? Should it have been a free kick? Mm-hmm. But the conclusion I came to, I'm, I'm very curious to see if you, you'd agree, is by today's metric, when almost everything is a foul, mm. it's a foul. Yeah. yeah. But I was surprised I, I it was given. I know, I know what you mean. I mean, it's so Invinity's on, on the ground and Stoichkov is sort of standing up and Invinity's sort of hacking away at the ball, which is not coming yeah. out from under his own legs. So I think at the very least, he's, you know, he, I mean, this almost sounds like some kind of rugby interpretation, but he has a responsibility to roll out of the way because otherwise he is obstructing <laughs> and he, he can't actually play the ball. And Stoichkov's standing there, not able to kick the ball with these flailing legs kick, coming at him. So I think it is a foul, but I know what you mean that there's a lot of games, particularly at that time, when it, it wouldn't have well, been given. You know, back then, if you, were, if you were making an attempt to play the ball, that was all that was needed, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, mm. And so it is a free kick, what, 21 yards out, 22 yards out? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, in a weird way, obviously it's a great strike, but it, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but one of Koeman's perhaps more straightforward strikes, if you see what I mean, even though it wasn't direct from the free kick. Because, I mean, people can forget, certainly younger listeners might not realise just how deadly Koeman was from free kicks. I mean, it was... He's going to flick one. He's going <laughs> to flick one. <laughs> DJ. Um, and, oh, blimey. Nightmares. But uh, it, it was almost like he had a penalty. There was such... Um, it was a bit like Janino Budapakanu for for Leon. You know, there was such um, anticipation before he took a. a but I think he, I mean, I think he's still the leading scoring defender of all time, isn't he? I think he took Passarella's record. I think yeah. Uh, if you look at his goal scoring record, it, I mean, it is phenomenal. over hundred I mean, goals. I, I think Passarella probably did a little bit more defending. To be fair, to <laughs> you. Oh, well, uh, yes, indeed. I think Cumin <laughs> Oh, he's way over a hundred. I think he's. He might even be knocking on for two hundred or something. Right. Okay. Incredible. But he scored seventeen in all competitions that season. And their top scorer was Stoichkov with 22 in all competitions that season. I mean, Michael Laudrup himself got 18. So he was one less than Laudrup that season in all competitions. It shows you just how uh, important these goals were to, to the team. But, but you're but right, we, there we, was that sort of sense of anticipation every time there was a yes. free kick within 25 yards. Yeah, And I, I, I'd have to say, I don't really remember that with any other player since. There's a little time with Roberto Carlos, but we saw yeah. Roberto Carlos yeah. smash so many into the wall. Beckham for a brief period. Mm. Uh, mm. certainly 20 minutes against Greece in, in 2001 um, uh, maybe maybe Janino as you say but I, I, I still don't quite remember the, it was like 
I mean, this is this is a, such a demeaning comparison. It was a bit like watching Roy de Lapp take a throw for Stoke. You're but right. That was a demeaning comparison. Um, <laughs> but, but no, uh... you, just, you just knew so this sort of incredible feat of of human power was about to happen, <laughs> yeah, no, and the chaos would ensue. <laughs> Um, I mean, Tim. Perhaps we go back to the specific moment when when they're lining up that free kick, and obviously it wasn't struck directly from the free kick. Did Did you think this was the moment? Were you aware of Kuman's? Um, oh yeah, no yes. And no, uh, if if you went to the game not aware, um, mm. you were certainly aware with the first chance of the game, which is yes. Paliuka beating one out. So of you course, knew there, so. there, there, yeah. there was there was and from the the vociferous protests of, of the Sampdoria players, you know, mm. you knew that they knew <laughs> as well. So it, yeah. it was a, it was a theatrical moment. And presumably the thing then as well is they've been running about for 112 minutes on a hot, sticky yeah. night. And so to have to do that sort of, you have a two players trying to charge him down must know that right, we've got this seven or eight yard sprint into a, a cannonball coming towards <laughs> us. And I can see why if you've been mm. playing football for nearly two hours in that heat, you might not fancy that. Yeah, and that's why you it, need a, a Ryan it, Shaw. It, it was to, hot. To one, of the, <laughs> one of the images watching it last night um, was uh, Viali after he's been subbed, drinking water. It's almost an entire bottle. Yeah. No, he's lo- he's and lost a lot of liquid. It, it was it was hot. The thing that I hadn't remembered because I'm so caught up in the emotion of the goal. I hadn't remembered how much time there still was. I, in in my memory of the game, it was like oh, the last kick of the game, but it wasn't. You know, there's still there's still six or eight minutes or what, whatever left, so there's there's still game on, and I'd, I'd I'd completely forgotten that. For me, like the final whistle came just after Kuman hit the back of the net, and that yeah. that's wasn't wasn't the way that it was. Yeah, but I think it was because the game had gone on and on, and it was such a you know tactical battle, and it was so tense, and as you, the whole stage is there. When you get that moment like that, a moment of quality to sort of break the deadlock, not too dissimilar, if, if, if you'll let me, the, the Euro 2016 final when Portugal scored against France. I know that was in terms of the dynamic of the game. A bit, it was roughly a bit the different. same time, though, wasn't it? It was, it was, but, it was after half time and extra time. So we're still yeah. sort of eight, ten minutes uh, to go. Exactly, yeah. But in my recollection, you think, oh, and with the last kick or with a minute to go or whatever. But because it was a moment of quality uh, like that, you thought it's going to be a mistake or, or or a bit of class. You think to yourself, surely you won't get two moments like that. We've had 112 minutes of of of, of no goals, and then that happens. So I, th- I think that's probably what it is that 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 the mind remembers it like that. Perhaps, and, and also, mm-hmm. if I close my eyes and try and take myself back there, I can just remember the Barcelona fans singing Campiones, Campiones, you know, because <laughs> for them, it was, it was almost as if the world could end the following day. Yeah. You know, they'd, they'd finally climbed the mountain that had been there ever since 1955. Yeah. And, and I think in, in the psychology of a club, it is absolutely critical. And I think you still see this with, with Guardiola now. I think one of the reasons for his bizarre neuroses around the Champions League is his memories of every season before this one, when the Champions League or, or the European Cup is it's the thing that Real Madrid win. It's not the thing that Barcelona win. And you have the first, or you know, one of the first iconic pictures of Guardiola is him as a ball boy in that semi-final in 86, 
when Barca had come from 3-0 down in the first leg to beat AFK Gothenburg 3-0 and they win on penalties and they go through to the final and there's that picture of him as a ball boy celebrating after that penalty shootout and they must have thought, you know, who we're playing? We're playing these these Romanians. Nobody's heard of them. We're playing it in Seville. There'll be no Romanian fans there because of Ceausescu closing the borders. This is this is ours. And they still lose it. And they lose it by failing to score any penalties in the penalty yeah, shootout. Yeah. And so I think, I mean, trauma is too strong a word, but those, it's, it's sort of a football trauma. There's mm. sort of these blows to the psyche that I think Barcelona had gotten to the habit of thinking, it's not for us. We, we mm. can't do this. There's something stopping us winning it. And I think, yeah, I think if they'd lost this game, then perhaps what goes on to happen, yeah, you know, fourteen years later and after that, maybe mm. wouldn't have happened. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it was... and, that, and that's all one of the reasons why Guardiola is so key in the history of the club. That he does mm. it as a player in his first full season, and then he does it as a manager in his first full season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it really was starting a sort of a new chapter really for, for, for Barcelona you know the champions of Europe and, and would go on to be uh, a, a few times over Tim whereas with Sampdoria as we say it was probably the end I mean obviously very different clubs with different mm. cities and so on but but had Sampdoria won that game you never know it could be a bit flash in the pan we've seen that with European sides uh, uh, having won the European Cup around that time or in, or, or in previous seasons but it could have been oh so different but of course it wasn't and and Barcelona kind of do you think that was the moment then that really they put themselves in the kind of the hearts and minds of of a lot of people outside of Spain? Yeah, I, when when I I moved over over here uh, two years later, so many people. This is a Rio thing, I think. So many people were going around in Barcelona shirts. Mm. That well, how much was, was, that was to do with that's, Romario? That's Romario, okay, yeah, because sure. a lot of others are going around in La Coruña shirts. Because of Bebeto, uh, yeah. it, was, it was really yeah, strange. Yeah. They were the two shirts that that, that that you saw, along with Milan shirts, because obviously they're they're black and red, which is the same color as 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 Flamengo. Um, but yes, I mean the the, the I, I agree with Jono in history. It, also, it, it, I think it, it's such a fascinating comparison between the '92 side and the Guardiola side as a coach, and, and no one has written better. About these trends in uh, in the modern game, than than, than yourself, Jono, because oh, okay. what what you don't have in 1992 is any real element of pressing, do you? The, the, the pitch, yes. is, pitch is huge. You know, so what comparison would you make between the 1992 Guardiola as a player and the Guardiola as, as a coach uh, from 2009 onwards? Um. I mean, you can see the same intelligence working in both. I mean, both both are fundamentally doing the same thing. They're both, you know, as you said, that it's about space. It's about finding the angles. It's yeah, about I mean, Fer- Ferguson the said Ferguson said this, isn't he? When before facing Barcelona in the finals, you know, he said it's the same thing that we beat in 1991, but it isn't, mm-hmm. is it? There are similarities, but it isn't the same thing. And and Ferguson came a cropper. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, I, I fundamentally think that. Uh, you know, inverting the pyramid argues that football falls into two periods. There's before available pressing. from all good bookshops. <laughs> yes. Uh, so there's, you know, there's all the football history up to the sort of mid '60s, which is pre-pressing, and then there's post mid '60s, which is pressing, and it's obviously not a direct divide. And so Brazil in 1970, for instance, is the end of the old football. They're the last great team of the old style of football, 
and they can do that because of the heat and the altitude in Mexico. Indeed. They would not, you know, we'd already seen they couldn't do it in England mm-hmm. when it's not as hot. I don't think they won 70 in Europe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and differences in referees and, and everything else. But but fundamentally, the, the, that's that's the sort of period of crossover. And in the 60s, you've got Ramsey in a very sort of understated, pragmatic, non-theoretical way, beginning a form of pressing. And then a very theoretical way, you've got Maslow at Dynamo Kiev and Michels at, at Ram, Ram, Ramsey fascinates me in that respect, especially the 1970s side. Because his 1970s side is Cafu and Roberto Carlos. Mm. Avant la lettre. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, even '66, Ray Wilson was attacking yeah, the fullbacks yes. of the day. Yeah, but that—that's the first, that's the beginning of of really of the great left backs or great attacking left backs. So, um, Nilton Santos. I mean, he'd been at '58, obviously, but uh, Facchetti and uh, Marcellini from from Argentina. You'd say are the first three great attacking left backs. But Ray Wilson is in their mold. He's not as good as them, but he's he's not doing a dissimilar job. And one of the so, big f- forgotten chapters, I think, in, in English football history is Keith Newton in the game against Germany when we mm, lose. He sets yeah. up both the goals. He, uh, he, 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 he creates other opportunities. Uh, and with that defeat and the way that Ramsey didn't handle his substitutions very well, he never plays for England again. And the whole thing seems to be buried as far as England are concerned. Yeah, well, it, it occurred to me three or four years ago uh, that something needed to be written on the transition in English football from WM to 4-4-2 from yeah. the point of view of a fullback. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I tried to speak to the two Everton fullbacks who did it under Harry Catterick when yeah. they won the league in 66 or 66. Yeah, they win the league. Um, and uh, is that true? Anyway, the mid-60s Everton team. And unfortunately, memories aren't yeah. aren't there. I rang Jimmy Armfield, who obviously did it at Blackpool, but he was very ill and couldn't really talk about it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I was too late. I should have done it yeah, 10 years earlier, yeah, but it didn't, yeah. didn't occur to me. And I would love to know, because that, that's the position that changes, the fullback, that WM. Absolutely. Back. Anyway, the point I was making before we got into this Sorry. is that I wonder if post-2008, I wonder if in 20 years we look back at that mm-hmm. and say that's the beginning of the third age. And the third age would be not just pressing, but where the first touch is taken for granted. Where you can play eleven aside like five yeah. aside, where the pitches are in you're know, always in great condition, where the technique of all the players is mm-hmm. is phenomenal, where you don't have aggressive tackling in the way you used to have, and so you can play a team of eleven diminutive midfielders, and it can work, and the game then becomes much more about how you manipulate that space because the first touch is taken for granted, and I think one of the a statistical quirk perhaps, but something that, that sort of suggests that is if you look at every season of the Champions League from the first season when it was rebranded, 92-3, up to 2007-8, I think there's only it's either two or three seasons when there's an average of more than three goals per game in a knockout stage. Since then, there's only been one when it hasn't. Football changes fundamentally when Guardiola gets that job. I mean, that perhaps is for, for another time, but uh, yeah, that, that's why Guardiola... Is so important. He's important as a player for bringing Barcelona at this age. Mm-hmm. He's Barcelona. Important as a manager for bringing Barcelona and the rest of the world with him into this sort of new conception of football. I, I love what he did as a player, and I love what he what he brings to the game as a coach. The one thing watching this game, it's probably a kind of kind of prudish point, but the one thing I thought isn't this great to watch is that it's almost like a part and parcel of of the way that the game is interpreted now. You've got to have the players putting pressure on the referee 
and calling for cards. Uh, and and th that doesn't happen here. You know, mm. I mean, Manini, there's a moment when Manini comes close to a red. He's on a yellow and he, he, he he's a little bit unlucky because he slips and he, he goes through the man. If that happened now, you know, there'd be a whole undignified <laughs> run towards the referee. And that's practiced. That's part of the game. You know, if I'm going to have a go at Wimbledon, who practiced it under Harry Bassett, they practiced putting pressure on the referee and jostling. I think then we have to have a go at, at, at the Guardiola school for that as well, because it's unpleasant. No, I agree. I agree. There's a, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't like that aspect of it. Yeah. I'd like, I'd like to see something done to rule that out. Mm. Yeah. Something yeah, but it's got to be blanket. Like it's got to be university. Yeah. You can't have one referee doing it and one not. It's got to be yeah. very, very yeah. clear. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure talking uh, with you uh, about this game. Thank you, Tim, for, for coming on. Um, what a game it was. And, and it was just to kind of slightly bookend it with Cruyff and, and Guardiola, perhaps it was nice when you hear about uh, those two men that it was Cruyff that kind of stuck up for Guardiola when he didn't have a great start at the Barcelona job and said, you know, Keep keep going with this guy, kind of thing, and yeah. sort of did. Well, him I mean, a solid he, he did that to him as a player as well, didn't he? Because yeah. uh, apparently, the first time he saw him, he, he said, "Oh, he's too slow," and and so Guardiola sort of withering in the youth team, and mm. then Cruyff goes looking for holding midfielder because they they failed to sign Jan Moldy, yeah. and uh, he's been told to go to this particular game, look at this kid in, in the youths, and Guardiola's on the bench, and he asks why? Oh, he's too small. Uh, which almost becomes a point yeah. of principle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to build a team around him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it just as well he turned out to be a good player. Yeah. He could have been, yeah. I, I think it, I, it's fascinating to see Cruyff young. Isn't he? he looks so yeah. young, and it, mm. it's it's emphasised by the fact that he's 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 rather strangely wearing a wearing a short sleeve sleeve shirt with a tie, which always makes mm. everyone look like a school kid. Isn't he? So yeah, he's looking right, like yeah. a school kid, and he looks so young. Um, but or I like a warehouse this. manager, kind of a yeah, vicious okay. warehouse manager going yes. around the clipboard, yeah, like pens. Um, lined up in his top pocket but yeah, i mean <laughs> but, the thing with, with cruyff you know he he guardiola now is older than cruyff was when he stopped managing right yeah yeah he, he had so much left and yet you know it finished age 49 incredible incredible well there we are ladies and gentlemen for more stories like that do check out the blizzard.co.uk uh tim an absolute pleasure thank you very much for coming on the podcast thank you for allowing me to relive my long and distant youth <laughs> Not at all. And the West Ham fan you spoke of earlier, I just assumed it was Ray Winston. Um, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so excellent stuff. Uh, well, Jonathan and I will be back next week with another great game from the history of football. See you then. Bye.